Okay, let's uh, begin. <clears throat> this evening what I want to talk about is uh, the Brahma-viharas, this untranslatable term that I mentioned to one of the questioners last night. Um, four qualities, one of which we've been obviously focusing on in this retreat, the quality of metta, the quality of friendliness, and there's the quality of compassion, and then the quality of joyfulness, but usually um, acknowledged and expressed as an empathetic or appreciative joy. And finally, the quality of equanimity. Now, if I've got any time left after speaking about those, I would like to also to mention another couple of other important qualities of mind. And really, kind of trying to jump back a couple of nights ago, back to when I was talking about the self towards the end of the last talk. Remember the ubiquitous me that inserts itself everywhere, you know, every little chink and crack can have a me. I came across this wonderful phrase in the States, apparently, that some people use, which is, uh, that's enough about me, what do you think about me? (laughs) 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 So, I think we can get the picture. Um, The kind of I, me, ego conceit that uh, is the Buddha is really focusing on is one of the major problems that we have. And I just want to say a few more words about that before we get into looking at some of, if you like, the ways of eroding this sense of egotism. The problem the Buddha has is with notions such as fixed self. Again, came up in some of the groups today. You know, having a self is important. Having a fixed self or a fixed identity or fixed idea about who you are is not always useful. It leads to psychological inflexibility for a start off. You know, inflexibly, I am like this, I can't possibly do this, I like this, I don't like this, I'm good at that, I'm bad at that. Does this sound familiar? <laughs> you know, we can create a litany of these, um, well, of these kind of statements and we would say, well, that's me. Yeah. Statements of identity. Um, but we don't just keep it to ourselves, we like to foist it on others as well. Yeah, have you noticed that? Yeah. Why, why keep anything to yourself when you can spread it around? <laughs> yeah, so we, we do this, we, we spread it around. And the Buddha, let's see if I can find a particular quote. It'll give you the impression what the Buddha thinks about the self, if I can find it. The self is one of the major problems that we have. Speak among yourselves. <laughs> well, I just find this. I should have sorted this out before. I didn't, didn't think I was going to want this particular quote, but I've decided I will if I can find it. Oh, here we go. This will give you an idea of the tone the Buddha thinks about self. It comes from the connected discourses of the Buddha. There's a whole section on this. This figure Mara, who I'm going to mention in the first line, I think I mentioned him, he's the death bringer. He's the one who really kills off life for you. You know, He's the tempter. Um, he's the one we often acquiesce to, Mara. So he's a kind of trickster figure in Buddhism. He's a kind of personification of our own inner desires and inner cravings and inner laziness and all sorts of dimensions and sensuality. He who imagines, says the Buddha, is bound by Mara. He who does not imagine is freed from this one. I am. This is a complete imagining. I shall not be. This is also an imagining. This I am. This is an imagining. I shall be this. This is an imagining. I shall not be this. This is also an imagining. Embodied shall I be, formless shall I be, I shall be conscious, I shall be unconscious. I shall neither be conscious or unconscious, shall I be. This imagining is a disease. Imagining is an abscess. It's a barb. I am is primarily an agitation. I am is a palpitation. I am is a delirium. 
And finally, I am is a conceit. Do you think he's got a problem (laughs) with this whole notion? So the I am that's centered right there, we govern the universe around it. Our own little world itself is created, just like the image I gave you the other night of the dog running round and round the pole. Yet we want others to orbit around this self as well. It's like the, the puppet master with pulling all the strings wanting everything to work for us. This world is being manipulated by us often through this sense of self to try and create what we want and avoid what we don't want. And so it's a very, very, very powerful force. It's a powerful force which is the one the Buddha is particularly concerned about in our relationships with others. Now, we wouldn't probably call it self in contemporary psychology, we'd probably call it the ego, but of course, you know, there's no word for this in, in Pali, so it gets to reduce down to the notion of the self. But we're still dealing with the same phenomena. Rampant egotism, rampant narcissism. This is the problem. We want the world to reflect back to us what we want and what we don't want. Um, and often the world does not do that for us. At all. Therefore, we have pain. We have dissatisfaction. We have all the things I've spoken about from the first evening onwards. We have these things. So, this solid sense of self that we have, that we construct for ourselves, the identities that we assume, um, all of these are fluctuating, they're evanescent. They actually arise and they pass away. Whatever role you've had, I think I might have mentioned this, whatever role at some point will become an X role. We will no longer have it. We will no longer have that career, that identity, that particular image of ourselves. It will be stripped away. Now that causes a great deal of pain when we have identity as well stripped away. Because this identity is formed by identification with something. By identifying ourselves as a something in this world. The French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre actually had a very interesting diagnosis of this. He said that basically people wanted to turn themselves into tables and chairs. And uh, this might sound very strange... But he said, you know, the things about tables and chairs and solid objects are, they don't change that much. They appear to have a solidity, a massiveness in this world, um, where unfortunately human beings are fleeting, fluctuating, passing, you know, mental states. You've only got to sit on the cushion for a few minutes and see what's going on, and you see just this constant stream and flux. You probably have, you know, hundreds and hundreds of identities passing through your mind. Hundreds and hundreds of roles as you sit there and watch. We assume all different identities. We assume different identities at different stages in our lives, don't we? You know, actually, if there's any real meaning to the idea of past lives, we look back and we see lots and lots of past lives that we no longer inhabit um, as we sit here with our new life. And that will become a past life at some point in time. So this sense of being human uh, and sense of who and what we are is being tried to be substantiated by us. Now taking on roles, taking on identities is a good way of attempting to substantiate ourselves. We not only have our work, have our profession, have our particular role, we want to become it. This is the sense of becoming that's often spoke about in Buddhist practice. We want to become it, literally live it, be it, so that your being is associated with, you know, we had one confusion the other night with your having. I am all of this stuff. I am all of the the material possessions that I accumulate. I am all of the roles that I accumulate in my life. I am my status, my wealth, my power whatever it might be, even my powerlessness. We can make identities, as you probably know, out of illnesses, 
as well. This is who I am. It's almost as if the heart of a lot of human beings is a terror at being nothing at all. Just being, in fact, it's better to know that I'm really ill because I'm something <laughs> here. You know, I've got my identity. I've got my symptom. I can carry it around. Here's my card. You know, this is who I am. I'm my symptom. You know, now, I'm kind of joking about this, but we take on these roles very, very seriously. You know? I was sharing with a group the other day, actually, that um, many years ago I was teaching South Africa. And I asked the usual kind of question that we often do is, uh, you know, what do you do to the particular person I was talking to? And they came back with the most marvellous of answers that I thought, which was, I play at being professor of linguistics. And I love the idea of play. Because in a sense, okay, it's serious play, a lot of it. You know, this is not to jest about it or to make fun of it. But in a sense, that's what we do. We play at it. It's a, it's a role we assume, like taking our place on the stage. You know, we try to do it to the best of our ability. We might take it very seriously. We might inhabit that role for a while. But ultimately, we have to cast off the particular role that we take on ourselves. So this is a kind of... I could spend the whole evening just talking about this, but this is not really where I want to go, because in a sense, what I'm trying to diagnose is the problem. And the problem, of course, is that this self, in its self-aggrandizement, in its attempt to substantiate itself, will get into lots and lots of unwholesome behavior. Yeah. It's fueled by greed, aversion, and delusion. All of our unwholesome mental states are seen in Buddhist psychology as being rooted in those three mental factors, in greed, aversion, and delusion. And we have a kind of family tree that grows out of them, you know, with the little progeny that come out of greed, aversion, and delusion here. So everything that we do and speak and say and think that is unwholesome in our lives, the the greed, the stinginess, the anger, all of the things that we think are so, so human, arise out of these three three fundamental factors. The jealousies, the pettiness, the resentments, the irritations, the callousness, the maliciousness, you know, our rages and our angers and our violence and everything else arises out of, out of these three factors. And of course, above all, our cravings arise out of these three factors as well. You know, the greed gives rise to our cravings, to our desires, to our wish to appropriate things, to not let go of things quite often, to hold on to them desperately even, even when they're of no use to us anymore. Yeah, I actually <laughs> I was told this story once before in this room, but uh, there was a, an instance a couple of years ago when I was hearing a conversation across the garden fences of where I live, and I heard this coming out of one of my neighbours' mouths, which was, "I can't possibly lend you that. I don't even use it myself." <laughs> And my jaw sort of hit the floor <laughs> at that point <laughs> when I heard this coming out. <laughs> so, you know, this kind of behavior that is the sort of behavior the Buddha is saying is not bad. He's saying it's unwholesome, it's unskillful, it leads to not good results, it doesn't, it doesn't bind us to others, it actually pushes others away. You know, just a simple statement like that is just kind of rejecting somebody, pushing them away. Interesting, we can't ever capture this in, in, English lang- in the English language, but the words in Pali, such as metta, karuna, mudita, all of these words which mean, you know, friendliness, compassion, and kindness, and, you know, sort of the joyfulness, are what binds us to others. They actually almost have an adhesive quality in the original language. It makes us stick to others rather than push them away, whereas the opposite is true of all these unwholesome factors which are about pushing others away, you know, not wanting them, 
In in our craving, sometimes there's even another. There's a flip side to it, which is actually I don't really want it either. Yeah, there's a kind of flip dark side to that as well. And we get these different forms of craving arising. The craving for sensual things, the craving to be, you know, which I've said, the, the roles, the identities, and all when it becomes too much, we get the impulse sometimes not to be. The craving not to be. And this results in all our aggressive tendencies of pushing away of you know, even self-annihilating behavior, you know, suicide and these sorts of things. All of them are linked to self. So when we start to talk about, in Buddhist psychology, about wholesome mental factors, we're talking about factors that start to erode this strong sense of self. I think we can see that there's a directionality, isn't there? I mean, even just in what we've been doing today, in most of what we've been doing, there's a directionality to the development of metta, which is in that it is turned outwards. You know, initially we develop it within, but then it's ultimately in the service of being turned outwards, turned towards others, turned towards that benefactor, turned towards that person who's a dear friend, turned towards that person who is you know, hardly figures in your life and you are completely indifferent to them and turn towards eventually the person who's really difficult as well in your life. So it's this development of the meta towards oneself is in the service of it moving outward into our relationships with others. And this is what is important. It would be sheer self-indulgement you know, self-indulgence, just to keep on concentrating on oneself. This is very important, I might add, in the West, to do this, to ground ourselves in this in the West, yet, ultimately, it has to be turned outwards. It has to be moved into the field of our human relations. And actually, these Brahma-Viharas, this untranslatable term, let me just say a few words about it. I said something about it the other night, but I just have to flesh it out a little bit. In ancient Indian society, which was dominated by religious movements, which had gods, which, of course, Buddhism didn't have, the kind of highest of the gods at one particular period, certainly by the time the Buddha was around, was a god called Brahma. Yeah, it was like the king of the gods. It's like the Zeus figure of you know, ancient Greece. He's the kind of king of the gods. And to say to anybody within this society, because their society was dominated by those who wanted to get off the round of rebirth, perceived and believed in absolutely that there was this sense of, there was a cyclical nature of going round and round from birth, death to rebirth, to birth, death to rebirth. And I think this is still what characterizes much of Indian religion in the subcontinent now is this idea. It's very strong, it's bound up with your karma. Again, a word which is often misunderstood in its Buddhist context here. So one is bound to this wheel of repetition of birth, death, rebirth, until you can find liberation, until you can get off the wheel. And to get off the wheel would be to merge with Brahma, to dwell with Brahma. And so the Buddha is using this phrase and saying, you know, that if you really want to dwell with Brahma, you know, don't do all your fancy religious rituals and stuff that was going on in Indian society and saying all your mantras and doing all your sacrifices and doing all this stuff that went on in, you know, in this ancient religious form. He said, if you really want to dwell with Brahma, i.e. gain liberation from this, then be kind, be compassionate, have a degree of empathetic joy and equanimity. And so he kind of takes it from the realm of religion and brings it right down into something practical that people can do. All of this stuff, and it would take a long time to explain, was based on some idea of a transcendent metaphysical reality um, that the Brahmins and the Hindus were going to reach if they continued to do their rituals again and again and again. Yeah. 
And the Buddha is saying, look, if you really want to do it, be kind, be compassionate, be joyful and appreciative and develop equanimity. And here you've got your roads to liberation. These four things in the Brahma Viharas are completely dependent on each other. Metta is the ground base that we start, in a sense, our journey into the Brahma Viharas from. This is, this is literally, in one metaphor, which I'll give you in a second, the soil out of which the others grow. Yeah. In many ways, even the compassion which is spoken about in the Brahma Viharas is a, is a direct outgrowth of the friendliness we develop towards ourselves. It's an outgoing kindness. I've kind of ditched personally in, in my work sometimes the translation of compassion. I actually just call it outgoing kindliness. This is what's indicated by this. You know, it's the acts that we engage in, you know, rather than a nice fuzzy thought in the head. You know, we often think of compassion as being a sort of emotion. It's not. Compassion is a doing. It's something we do that comes out of the very uh, wellspring of friendliness which is within us that we have developed both for ourselves and for others. It almost becomes a spontaneous act of compassion or of outgoing kindliness. The metaphor that was given is a beautiful metaphor that stems from the 14th century, from a Tibetan text in the 14th century by somebody called Longchenpa. And he describes the relationship between the Brahma Viharas like this. He says, out of the soil of friendliness grows the beautiful bloom of compassion, watered by tears of joy and sheltered under the cool shade of the tree of equanimity. Showing the interrelationship between all of these four factors. It's a lovely image, I think, of, of the way these things hold together in experience. The moment we begin to develop friendliness along with other qualities, I might add. I mean, for example, one of the most uh, specific qualities that's spoken about in Buddhist cultures is the quality of generosity. To renounce things, to give things up. To give up time, to give up energy sometimes, to be with others. Not to be holding on to material things, not to be holding on to our own selfish concerns. And this is almost considered within traditional Buddhist cultures to be the ground base for beginning to erode this sense of self, to beginning to whittle it away, to work on it, like water working on stone, you know, gradually, 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 drip by drip, eroding the stone. Yeah. The stone here, of course, is our ego, is our strong sense of self that can be eroded by these acts of kindness, by these acts of generosity, by the act of friendliness. Because as I've indicated already, they're all movements out, they're all forays into the world. If you think about your most egotistical moments, and we all have them, come on. (laughs) Hands up who hasn't had an egotistical moment over this week. (laughs) Well done, Bill. (laughs) When we have those truly egotistical moments, notice actually almost how we feel enfolded in on ourselves. Yeah. It's almost as if we can't see others and can't contact others. We're literally wrapped in ourselves, you know, sort of almost pushed down into ourselves in this kind of narcissistic way. And so what we have to do is to reverse that direction. This is actually almost a diagnosis of narcissism. This this sense of being wrapped up, looking and staring at ourselves continuously. I was saying to the previous retreat that was here the other week, there's there's a wonderful psychological paper written in 1949 by somebody called Jacques Lacan, which is actually hilariously funny. 
because he actually makes the claim that apes are far more intelligent than humans. And he bases this on the idea that, um, you know, that basically human development takes place through what he calls mirroring behavior. You know, sometimes in some cultures it's literally the behavior of the parents, the caregiver of the child that mirrors something back to it. Um, and in certain cultures, obviously, like Western culture, it has, literally has mirrors in which to see itself. So the child gets a sense of itself from its parent, doesn't matter whether it's male or female, from its parent as being a whole unit and the centre of the universe at a very, very early stage. And uh, thereafter, it's condemned to search for this sense of wholeness which it actually never possesses from this kind of mirroring behaviour. But he said... He says, think about this. What happens when you hand an ape a mirror? What basically happens is an ape is the ape gets the mirror. (laughs) And loses all interest once it's discovered there's nothing behind the mirror. What happens with humans when they get the mirror? This is a kind of forever thing, isn't it? (laughs) Looking in that mirror. This is basically the myth of Narcissus. You know, this was a very popular myth in... in, um, It's a Greek myth, but it's very popular in the Middle Ages. And it tells the story... There's many different versions, but the the most common version that was found in the Middle Ages was of the young man who falls in love with his own reflection as it's mirrored back to him in a lake, in a pool of water. And what he does is he gets so enraptured by it, he falls in and drowns. And this actually is the situation we often find ourselves in, drowning in ourselves. And I think at our most egotistical moments, for example, anger and craving, what I want and what I don't want, there we are drowning in ourselves. So when we start to talk about the Brahma-viharas, we're talking about somehow reversing that direction, making us move into the world. Now, I'm not going to say so much about metta, because metta has been the theme of much of what we've spoken about this week. But remember from the first, I think it might have been the first evening or first morning that I spoke about metta. Metta is this sense of boundless friendliness. Hence the reason for all the categories that we look at. It's not just friendliness towards yourself and your family or your friends or somebody who's helped you. It goes into, as we know, because we've been working with a category today, you know, going into being with and showing friendliness to those who you don't particularly like or dislike. They don't really mean much to you in your life. And the task becomes whether I can actually be friendly to people of that sort who don't actually do anything for me in my life. Now, it's not going to say, it doesn't have to say you have to like them. It doesn't have to say, certainly, you have to dislike them. But it's saying, even if they remain at that kind of neutral, as this neutral category, then we can move into a friendly relationship. That's the, if you think about it, it's the vast mass of humanity who we're going to encounter in our lives actually have that status for us. You know, and when you come across them, in situations, can you be friendly? That's a practical question. Yeah. But the practical question has its solution in psychological origins. Yeah. In you know, psychologically moving our minds into different grooves other than, actually, I don't even bother with that person because they're really not important to me at all. It extends it into the realm, of course, of people who are difficult. You know, that's a quite a lot of people as well, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. People that don't do the things that you want them to do. Yeah. Now, even those who are close to you sometimes get labelled as difficult. Certainly family usually do. Yeah. These family members who just don't do what I want them to do. Yeah. Don't actually work to please me. Yeah. And so... When we start to move out into this realm of friendliness, it's a boundless sense. 
The Buddha says it even moves out into the realm of the non-human, of actually having a friendlier stance to non-human being as well as human beings here, so that we don't immediately squish the spider because we are frightened of it. You know, or attempt to you know flush it down the plug hole or something. Yeah. We actually come into again a different relation, a more respectful relationship with other forms of life, as well as obviously human life, which is you know, which we're centred on here, which is so important. The other meaning of this word, it's derived. You remember, derived from this root that means to grow fat with friendliness, you know, to expand with friendliness. You know, this is the sense of boundlessness as well. You know, it's not bound by particular individuals you know, who are for me. It means it's moving out into the world in a far greater sense. It also, and this came up, comes come up a number of times in groups today, and during the last few days, I should say, it's that which helps us to look at much ill will that isn't examined in our lives. You know, by even attempting, as we're doing in this week, to orient our minds in this different way by using these phrases, which don't necessarily come easy, they don't necessarily always sit easily with us. But sometimes we just come up in the sheer face of a sense of ill will, aversion, you know. Aversion to the phrases, aversion to the practice, and aversion to the people it's directed towards. You know, we can get really averse in this practice. <laughs> you know, but actually therein lies the insight. Because it's a little bit like lifting the lid off the pressure cooker just a little bit. Because some of it escapes, this aversion. And I think it's better to know the aversion that's there rather than have it seething and bubbling away in the background, and then suddenly it's there in situations and it becomes extremely unskillful. Very, very unskillful. Quite destructive in terms of human relationships. So this becomes the ground base here. And remember, it's friendliness, not loving-kindness. I mean, I really do want to make a point about this. It's friendliness, not loving-kindness. Love has nothing to do with it. The word maitri, the word metta, which is its Pali equivalent, has nothing to do with love. It has everything to do with befriending something. Yeah. And I actually think, realistically, you know, this is much more doable for all of us. It's something we can all do. We can certainly aspire to be friendly, I don't know how many of us could aspire to be to love everything. Perhaps that's just my slight cynicism. But I think it's a much more difficult prospect to have to love everything rather than be friendly with everything. And particularly to love somebody who's doing something really horrible. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really difficult thing to do. And out of that, out of that arises acts of kindness. This is generally what we call karuna. Karuna is a, a word in Pali and Sanskrit. It's exactly the same in both languages. It, that means, in a sense, to engage in acts of friendliness. The root of it comes from a word which means to do something, to engage in activity, yeah. to do something. So it's quite clear just even on the linguistic basis of this, that what we're talking about when we start talking about, let's stick with the old word because everybody's much more familiar with it, compassion. Compassion is not something you sit on your cushion and have lovely feelings about. Compassion is going out and doing something. Here, The feelings don't count for a lot. The doing counts for a tremendous amount. Yeah. The Buddha uses two words, actually. The most frequently used word, it's a lovely word in Pali, it's a, it's a word called anukampa in the Pali language, anukampa. And it's literally, there's two, two meanings to it. And the first is the trembling of the heart. That's one meaning of it. 
the other meaning which is there, which is actually almost a literal, literal meaning of it, which is to cry out at the crying out of another. Yeah? To cry out at the crying out of another. So it has this quality of absolute empathetic engagement with the other. So much so, you, know, you can get this impression, the trembling along with, the crying out at the crying out of another. Yeah. Now, what's so important about this is that it has to translate into terms of action. And this was even the case with the kind of mythology around the Buddha's awakening. It said he gained awakening. And one of the first things he said to himself was, once he gained awakening, was, actually, I think this is going to be rather vexatious to me to have to teach this stuff. It's pretty well, you know, almost word for word what's in the text. You know? This stuff is difficult and it will be vexatious to me to have to communicate it to others. And then it says that um, a figure comes along, I won't go into the details of it, comes along and pleads with him for the benefit and out of compassion for suffering others, those, it says, who don't have you know, basic, basically um, blindness in their eyes, that this will be of benefit to others. And so it says, at that moment, he turns outwards and sees suffering humanity. Yeah. And that gave him the decision to teach. Now, interestingly, that turning outwards... Away from his own thinking, this is going to be a real problem for me to teach this stuff. I really don't want to teach this. You know, looking outside, turning away from that initial feeling that he has himself, and to see others is what prompts him. Now, that turning outwards is, again, another meaning of the word karuna. To turn outwards away from your own self-centered concerns. To see others and to engage in helping others. In the case of the Buddha, obviously, it's his dispensation. It's his teaching of you know, his 45 years of trekking around on foot in northern India, um, teaching all and sundry who he came across uh, about his discovery, what he had um, discovered in his own path to awakening and encouraging him to engage in it. But compassion, to be operative in this sense, must include that. You must see Others' pain. And sometimes we do, don't we? Automatically. You know, sometimes our hearts go out to somebody who we see in distress or in pain and we want to help them. Yeah? This is what's being fostered in what I call the mind of compassion. The compassionate mind that wants to really move out and help others. Compassion, again, like meta starts at home, we've got to want to help ourselves as well. Compassion isn't of one flavour either in, in all of Buddhism, not just, um, not just the early forms. We find imagery scattered throughout, for example, Tibetan Buddhism, which actually includes imagery of kind of quite wrathful, demonic-looking creatures. You know, and I was again saying to a group this morning, that uh, when I first came across these and I was in a temple in northern India in the ten- tender age of 17 or something, and I was saying to a Tibetan teacher there, you know, I saw this figure, it was all in black, outlined in gold, with flames coming out the back of it. Um, it was drinking from a, a skull brimming with blood, this figure, trampling corpses and with severed heads as a garland. And I went, what on earth is that? <laughs> and the, uh, and the, 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 the lama there said to me, he said, oh, that's compassion. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yet there was these other figures which were all gentle and you know, soft and that. And he was like, oh, they're compassion too. <laughs> you know, and what he was trying to indicate by this was that actually compassion doesn't have one quality to it. Sometimes it's soft and gentle, and that's what's needed. Sometimes it's a little bit more dynamic. (laughs) 
Now, the most common example I gave, and I gave this to the group this morning as well, was that, of course, you know, when you shout at a child to stop it from you know, throwing itself into a swimming pool in which it can't swim or wanting to poke its hand in the fire, and you might scream at it not to do that, what are you doing it out of? Not really out of anger, although it appears to be, and certainly probably would appear to the child to be, it's done out of compassion. You don't want your child to hurt itself. You don't want it to drown in the swimming pool. You don't want it to burn itself in the, in the hot fire. Equally so, sometimes what we see is a manifestation of almost a wrathful compassion. Yeah. A compassion that needs, in other words, to shout a bit more loudly. I think we see this in you know, some forms of activism, you know, environmental activism and social activism, which looks at you know, the downtrodden and the oppressed and shouts about it. Yeah. And really, really highlights it. This is an activity again, but it can be a compassionate activity if it's done with the right intention and the right motivation behind it. I'm aware time is drawing on, so I want to kind of do these last two elements of the Brahma Viharas, which are also so important. Often get overlooked, actually. Um, The first two have a lot of attention usually paid to them. Yeah, I'm probably as guilty as that in that this week is devoted simply to metta. But one of the other elements, and there was a question about it last night, is, is the element of joy. Yeah. Now mudita, which is this sort of appreciative joy, you know, appreciative joy. Traditionally, this appreciative joy has nearly always been directed to feeling joy at the good fortune of others when it arises, even if there is nothing happening in your own life at that moment that one might call good fortune. So you can still appreciate and feel joyful that something good is happening for someone else. But I think this overlooks sometimes, this kind of more traditional approach, sometimes overlooks the psychological dynamic of this, that actually we need to appreciate also the important and good elements in our own life. Because again, part of the egotism is saying, oh, I want that and I haven't got it. I want this and I haven't got it. And you know, I can't get on my holiday because I haven't got enough money. And, and we go on basically whinging. <laughs> you know, this is a, a perfect way of beginning to stop whinging about life and saying, what is good for you? You know, even if you're ill, even if there's something wrong with your body, have a quick check out about which bits are working perfectly. <laughs> you can appreciate, oh, it sounds silly, doesn't it? But, you know, you can actually look at what's actually working okay in your body. You're still here, yes. Yeah, my leg still works, yes. You know, I can wiggle my toes, yes. <laughs> you know, and we can actually build up just from these simple things a, a greater appreciation of what we actually have. There's a form of Buddhism in Japan which is known as Shinran. The whole practice of Shinran Buddhism is the practice of appreciation and gratitude. Yeah. Uh, I met a professor from Tokyo once and who was a Shinran Buddhist and he said he used to go into the temple every morning and sweep the whole temple out and then basically sit down and say, basically verbalize his gratitude for what he had in his life, you know, from his children to his job to the good things in life. Sometimes we don't have that. We don't appreciate the joyful things that are there. How often do we really, really take time, for example, even when we're outside, not necessarily on our walking path, but just taking time outside, to really look and appreciate colour? To really appreciate the, the feeling of the breeze on your skin? the writer Virginia Woolf used to say that there were incredible moments of being and then she puts these moments of being are putting your hand in cold water on a hot day to feel the wind on your skin to appreciate the play of light in the leaves these were moments of being how often do we take the time 
to really come into that appreciative relationship with these things. So it has this double-edged notion, you know, the, the, joyful, the, the joyfulness that arises out of a sense of appreciation for what, you know, just we, that we are given, in a sense. You know, we are given through our embodiment. The things that come, obviously, through our work and our, you know, our families and things like this. We often spend a lot of time rather complaining about what we haven't got rather than appreciating what we have got. And even if we're going through tough times, we can look at others who have, you know, have something good occurring in their life and get joy even through that as well. So there's a double dynamic, I think, to this term, mudita, here, that's very, very important for us to remember. It brings, actually, a joyfulness into our lives. Yeah? It brings it and places it right at the center of our lives. It's not a peripheral thing. It can be right in the center of our lives. And finally, the last of the Brahma Viharas is something called Upeka. It has a synonym in Pali as well, which is Tatra Majatata, which means literally in the middleness. And this is to be in the middle of life, but not to be thrown off balance by what comes at one. Yeah. This is all about living the balanced life. Many have interpreted the idea of equanimity as being somehow outside of life, you know, sitting on the peripheries, not engaged in it. The figure that's presented in terms of the person who is equanimous in life is the person who moves through all that life throws at them without actually succumbing to the bad things that happens to them that knocks them off balance or the good things. Again, remember I used the image of the pinball the other day. You know, you could be just like a pinball. Good thing happened, boom. Bad things happen, bing. <laughs> good thing, bong. <laughs> you know, you could be just bouncing around with the things that are happening which we say are good and bad to us. That, however, this is a pinball that refuses to move. You know, it stays firmly balanced, you know, without being thrown from one side to the other, just flipped backwards and forwards. You know, so this is the image of equanimity, almost like the dancer moving through life, you know, the perfect ballet dancer moving through life, completely balanced. In many ways, equanimity is a synonym for liberation as well. Towards the end of his life, in fact, the final so-called words of the Buddha my kind of rough translation of them into a modern idiom here, run like this. Absolutely everything is impermanent. Now get on with it. You know, indicating that we can move through this sense of impermanence without being thrown and buffeted by the winds of fate. There are other winds that buffet us all, you know, praise and blame, fortune and misfortune. You know, these are other winds which we had to, if we had time I would go into that buffet us around. You know, again, equanimity, for example, would take no account of praise or blame. Yeah. You know, it wouldn't be going, oh, give me more if it's praise or you know, don't want it if it's blame, get away, don't want to hear that. It would actually be moving through life in this balanced, balanced way here. So these four qualities are qualities that the Buddha really gives us as being qualities towards the liberation of egotism. Liberating ourselves from the egotistical boundedness that we often find ourselves in when basically the story is all about me. This is a story that is a relational story that includes others. And that's the important part about it, that it begins to include others in it. Now, I want to finish the talk this evening just with a quote, a couple of quotes, actually. And I'll tell you who they're by after I've read the quote. The creature we help to save, though only a half-reared linnet, bruised and lost by the wayside, how we watch and fence it, 
and dote on its signs of recovery. Our pride becomes loving, our self becomes a not-self, for whose sake we become virtuous. When we set to some hidden work of reclaiming a life from misery and look for our triumph in a secret joy, this person is the better for me. Okay. Here's the second quote. Look on other lives beside your own. See what their troubles are and how they are born. Try to care about something in this vast world besides the gratification of your small selfish desires. Try to care for what is best in all of thought and all of action. Something that is good apart from the accidents of your own lot. Both of those, I think, are very much in keeping with the spirit of the Brahma Viharas, of what I've been speaking about. But they're by a, a non-Buddhist. They're actually by George Eliot, the uh, novelist. And they come from one of her novels, Daniel Deronda. Expresses exactly the idea, the compassion and care. And it doesn't say, well, we shouldn't be feeling anything. If some, you can look at somebody or some animal you know, that you care for and think, well, this, this person or this is actually better for me. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. But particularly the last one, because it's about you know, the selfishness. You know, look on something in this vast world other than your own troubles. See how others bear them. You know, move away from the desires which are bound to this notion of self that we so guard and so protect but is so destructive to us actually living our lives. Okay, thank you everybody. Give your attention. Thanks. What we'll do tomorrow night is we'll have another question and answer session and then on the final evening I want to give you then the story about mindfulness which is one of the big stories about you know, the Buddha's strategies for overcoming you know, um, the problems that we have. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.